This episode of Pod Cemetery is brought to you by the Park West Medical Center, where we're currently working on reversing the aging process. Park West, forever and ever. Hello, my name is Chris. My name is Kelsey. And this is Pod Cemetery, where we dissect horror movies like the rotting corpses that they are. This week, we're both sick. I got Kelsey sick. I got Kelsey sick. And I'm counting on the fact that while that may annoy the ears of some of you out there, there's some of you out there, that's your kink. So, kind of counting on that. The alternative is really just not releasing an episode this week, which is not what we wanted to do. This week we're talking about sexy vampire-ish characters. Yeah. With 1983's The Hunger and 2009's Jennifer's Body. Both of these movies this week are recommended by... The Chickapedia. Yes, thank you, Chickapedia. I believe originally she was talking about how related Jennifer's Body and Ginger Snaps are, because Ginger Snaps was a Chickapedia recommendation mm-hmm. as well. And when we get to Jennifer's Body, we'll just go into a quick list of how those movies are nearly identical. Uh, Plot-wise, plot they are really, really close to each other. <laughs> but we'll get to those when we talk about Jennifer's Body. But thank you very much, Chickapedia, for the recommendation. But before we get to the movies, Kelsey, how do we start the show? Trivial Pursuit Horror Edition. Give me what you got. Nancy Thompson survives in 1984's A Nightmare on Elm Street to appear in what sequel in the series? Dream Warriors. Yes, A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors. Which is going to be our next Nightmare movie. Woohoo! So excited about that. Yes. All right, Kelsey. At the end of The Witch, 2015, what does Thomason write in the book belonging to Black Phillip? Her name. That is correct. All right, our first movie is 1983's The Hunger, based on a novel by Whitley Stryber, written by Ivan Davis and Michael Thomas, and directed by Tony Scott, starring Catherine Deneuve, David Bowie, and Susan Sarandon. What is The Hunger about? A vampress and her lover search for... A cure to her lover's rapid aging. Yeah, this is Tony Scott's first theatrical feature. Ironically, it looks a lot like he's trying to mimic his brother Ridley from the same era. Tony Scott would go on to do tons and tons and tons of movies, but more like modern gritty action movies, like... Man on Fire and Enemy of the State and Crimson Tide and The Last Boy Scout. And he did Top Gun and Beverly Hills Cop 2 and True Romance and Domino, The Taking of Pelham 123, the remake from 2009. So he is, or I should say was, 
pretty prolific. He died in 2012. Should people watch this movie, though, Kelsey? I liked it. I'll say yeah. It's $4 to rent, $10 to buy. It's not streaming free anywhere. Do you think it's worth spending the money? I think $4 is fine. Yeah. You should watch it once. Yeah. It's a pretty painless watch. Yeah. I gotta say. I don't know if that's a great testament to its quality, but... uh, It's interesting. Yeah. uh Uh-huh. You could take our advice or leave it, but when we get back, we will talk about 1983's The Hunger. There is a choice between mortality and everlasting life. Between ordinary emotion and unearthly passion. Between the everyday and the unimaginable. But there is a price. It is called The Hunger. Catherine Deneuve. David Bowie, Susan Sarandon, The Hunger. Coming soon to a famous player's theater near you. Check your local listings. All right, Kelsey, can you walk us through the plot of The Hunger? We open on a very fun scene in an 80s dance club. With Bauhaus playing Bella Lugosi's Dead. Bella Lugosi's Dead. The bats have left the bell tower. The victims have been bled and velvet lines. The black box. Bella Lugos is dead. And it's very new age. I don't know how to describe it. Like their sunglasses and their clothing and their hairstyles. I don't know how else to describe it. It's, it's like 80s goth new age. Uh huh. It's great. We focus in on Deneuve and Bowie picking their victims from the crowd. We watch them drive their victims to their house. They are a couple and they've picked a couple and the woman begins to dance. There's all kinds of bright lights and there's not a lot of talking going on. Yeah. And eventually somebody says no ice. So the woman has to go get ice, so she stops dancing. Bowie follows her into the kitchen to get the ice, while Deneuve and the man are left in the living room. And there's lots of sex going on, and then we see the woman pull off Bowie's wig to show that he does not have a a, a thick head of hair. I forgot about that. Interesting. Very thin hair. Yeah. But when he goes out, he puts on a wig. While they are ravishing each other, both Bowie and Deneuve end up cutting the necks of their yes. victims. So a few things. This is all happening while we're also seeing some similar rage in a chimp or a monkey. I don't I don't know. Don't ask me. Because <laughs> what happens when they get old is they get really fucking aggressive. It's just a thing that happens. Any of those stories where you hear like a... Uh, a chimp ripped off somebody's face and balls and shit like that. It's because they, they get old and then they get aggressive. It's weird. Some people, it's the exact same thing. They get old, they get dementia, and they become aggressive. Yeah. So the sex and attack is being intercut with a similar sort of thing with some test monkeys. One of them just eats another one, rips out its neck with its teeth and this is all happening while Bowie and Deneuve are killing their prey. We and also they, see that Susan Sarandon is watching the monkey. Yes, yes. As Susan Sarandon is the other co-star of the movie, uh, who plays the other point in this sort of incomplete love triangle. And 
Bowie and Deneuve slice open the throats of their victims with these onks that they have around their neck. Now, I can't think of an onk without thinking of either Onk Morpork, which is the name of a, of a large town in the Discworld series of books written by Terry Pratchett. His longtime writing partner, Neil Gaiman, wrote a series of comic books called Sandman and Dream, who's the main character of Sandman. His sister, Death, wore an onk around her neck. An onk is an Egyptian symbol for life. Uh, there's no explanation why they have these things, just that they do. Well, and and there are flashbacks to Egypt. Yeah. Um, but we don't get an explanation why they have these knives hidden inside these onks around their neck. There's no like direct reasoning. Uh, there's not actually a whole lot of plot happening in this movie at all, honestly. But it's much more about the aesthetic and the visuals. Yes. But what we end up learning is that the monkey is a test subject, is part of this series of tests to prolong life and it was doing really well and it was it was okay and then it just aged rapidly and later on we'll see it in the throes of death and then it collapses and then it rapidly degenerates and decays uh, in front of their eyes the scientists led by Susan Sarandon and her boyfriend Kelsey do you recognize her boyfriend He's the dad from The Craft. Yes, Cliff Young. We mentioned him in last week's episode. I just thought that was pretty interesting. So what else happens? After they have finished, Deneuve and Bowie take a shower. In the shower, Bowie says, forever and ever. And Deneuve goes, what? <laughs> and he says, forever and ever. And then she kisses him. Forever. The movie is very quickly trying to show us some things that are going on in this relationship. Yes. Bowie is clinging. Deneuve is letting go. Yes. We'll find out later that, and I think it's it's spelled out clearly in the original book it's based on, but Deneuve is thousands of years old. And Bowie is hundreds of years old. And she is much older than he is. And she's doing a-okay. <laughs> Bowie, not so much. I think it's interesting that Bowie showed this kind of vulnerability. Because you would expect him to be like a cool character in a movie that doesn't show this kind of vulnerability. Where he's like forever and ever, right? And she's like, huh, what, huh? What'd you say? You know, like she obviously heard what he said and she's trying to downplay it. and Which makes him a little... Pathetic-y. There's this tinge of of that patheticness that but runs you will find out that yeah, he's not going to stand for this. Yeah, and at the same time, anybody who watched American Horror Story Hotel, yes, is going to notice a lot of things. I wrote this very early on. Uh huh. That it reminded me a lot of American Horror Story Hotel. And it is just a straight ripoff. <laughs> Instead of Onks, Lady Gaga and her lover, they use like nails. Uh, she has fake nails that she wears and slices people's throats with. But it's the same thing. They're these sort of gothy, over-the-top, resplendent, vampire-type characters who... Select their prey at clubs, bring them back home, fuck them, and then then eat them. 
what's happening actually in the hunger is they suck all their blood like a vampire would, and then they burn the bodies. They don't actually eat them. But in any case, back in American Horror Story, there's a scene where they get introduced to a character and like the baseline of Bella Lugosi's dead is playing. It's very obvious that, in, <laughs> that American Horror Story is specifically referencing this. It's this concept of what if vampires were real, but they didn't like puncture your flesh with teeth, you know, like they're a mosquito. No, no. What if they just had to get at your blood and that's how they got their power? I just think that's, that's pretty fascinating. And it's a little, in my opinion, it's a little sexier, which is exactly what this movie is going for. I disagree. I love vampire lore. Uh huh. So I think it's sexy to think of teeth puncturing the neck and the blood flowing that right. way. Yeah, but we talked about it. To put enough pressure on those teeth to puncture, like your whole entire tooth line is going to be along that person's neck. And you're going to rip out their neck, which is what the monkey does. You're not going to just put two perfect little puncture holes. I like that vampire lore. I like that. No, it's cool. It's it's traditional. It's classic. But it's not functionally... It, it doesn't, like, provide any function to the vampire mythos. So what if we ditched that part and just made it a little bit more... I hate to say realistic, but... <laughs> anyway... I'd like to point out that er last week I told you that I only watched the beginning of this movie and turned it off. I think Chris can attest to the fact that the first 20 minutes, very little is spoken. Yeah. And I think you can agree with me that, you know, 12 years ago you might have been watching this and been like, what the fuck is this? And yeah. turned it off. Sure, yeah. That's what I did. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't let the story begin. <laughs> right, because the story doesn't begin for a little bit. There's even scenes where John, who is Bowie's character, and Miriam, who is Danube's character, are teaching a young girl to play violin. <sighs> really, this only goes towards building John's character, interestingly. The, the girl herself kind of doesn't go anywhere. She doesn't have much of a plot. Well... It's an interesting question because once you understand what's happening, you understand that John, David Bowie's character, worries that he's going to be replaced by this young girl. Yeah. That's a strange thing to think because as far as we've been shown, and we do get to see her past, some of her past. In, in flashes. When I say like a flashback, it's like flashes. It's, it's not like scenes. But every single one that we've seen has been an adult. Yeah. So the idea that she would want a child is strange, especially if she wants to. Well, I think it's more grooming. Right. But she just seems very young. And I don't imagine that this woman would want a child because she wants a sexual being with her. So that's weird. And I don't see. Well, I think it's also an, an expression of John's. Jealousy. Paranoia and jealousy, yeah. Absolutely, but it's like, was that all it was? Because later when Tanu finds out what he does to her, she goes, what have you done? Yeah. And I don't know if it's because she thought of her as like a child or if yeah. she was thinking of her as a po as a possible familiar. I assume that she had a very motherly bent on her. Of course, what this really makes me think of is uh, adulterous relationships, right? Like... What we find out is that John 
replaced another lover that she had. And now John's paranoid that he's going to be replaced. And yeah, he's had hundreds of years of this relationship, like 200 years or something like that. And now he's worried about being replaced. And it's like, dog, what do you expect? That's what she did with you. You were a replacement. So it's that sort of paranoia around relationships that start through adultery. It's like, how, like, what, what do you expect is going to happen? Oh, now they're going to be faithful to you? Like, they thought they were going to be faithful to the person before you. And then you came along. So like, uh, but what's happening is that John, he's hungry. So again, the hunger, he still feels the hunger, but he doesn't get any of the satisfaction afterwards and he can't sleep. And so he's just rapidly aging. It makes me think of forever young, the Mel Gibson movie. Do you remember that? Yes, I do. Spoilers for forever young. (laughs) But he gets cryogenically frozen and then wakes up, what, 40 years later or something like that, maybe 50. And, like, right as he's trying to find, track down his old lover uh, and this little boy is helping him, his age starts catching up to him. And then he starts rapidly aging. And so now there's, like, a time limit to find her. But also, oh, he's going to be her same age when he does find her, you know. So anyway, it made me think of that, even though Forever Young came later. His hundreds of years old age is like starting to catch up with him and he's starting to age rapidly and decay rapidly, just like this monkey that Susan Sarandon was studying. So let's talk about that. She wrote a book about age and sleep and how sleep is important to maintaining youth. So that ties directly into David Bowie not sleeping. She does a few interviews and Miriam is like, ooh. You know, oh, she could be a resource. Yes. And she's pretty sexy. Those two things. Also, I, I I think it's kind of dismissive to say that she looks forward to oh, finding a new lover. No, I wouldn't say that that's what she's doing at all. Yeah. I think she does love Bowie. Yes, absolutely. And, and I think it, if it breaks she, her heart. If she could find a way to save him, she would. Right. So I think... That even though she does find Susan Sarandon appealing, I think she's also hoping maybe she can help in some way. Yeah. So she tries to meet up with her. She goes to a signing. She has a conversation with her. But it kind of doesn't go anywhere until John, David Bowie, ends up showing up at her offices. He insists that she see him because, what are these, liver spots? I didn't have those this morning. Mr. Uh, late on. Yes, I'm very late right now for meeting on another floor. Look at me. Look at my hands. How old am I? They're waiting. How old? I don't know. Uh, These are liver spots, aren't they? They look like it, yes. I didn't have them yesterday. Yesterday I was 30 years old. That's remarkable. I'm a young man. Do you understand? I'm a young man. I'm aging rapidly and you need to help me. And so at first she's like, yeah, yeah, get out of here, whatever. Then she's like, okay, fine. I have to go to this meeting. I'll be back in 15 minutes. Wait in the lobby. And then she calls the security guard up front and goes, hey, there's a guy. I'm sending him down there. Just be nice to him. He'll get up and leave on his own. But he doesn't. He sits in that lobby for two hours and... 
rapidly ages during that time. Meanwhile, we're watching a monkey do the same thing. Yes. Age, they say, five years per minute. And we watch, meanwhile, Bowie aging very fast in that waiting room. And we end up seeing the monkey fucking completely decay and decompose. uh It's kind of fucked. Yeah. And so he ends up realizing that he's been sitting there that long and that he's gotten that old. And he's like, fuck. He gets up to leave. And that's when he passes by Susan Sarandon, and he's like, You lied. And then when she sees what's happened to him, she's like, No, you must stay. And he's like, No, fuck you. Dr. Roberts. Yeah. You let me down. I beg your pardon. You didn't believe me. You left me sitting there for over two hours. Mr. Blaylock? You had your meeting to go to. Fifteen minutes, you said you lied. Just thought I was some ridiculous old crank. Mr. Blaylock, wait, please. I can't wait. I'm urgently required elsewhere. Mr. Blaylock, please, come into my office. Why don't you take a seat in the patient's lounge? Mr. Blaylock, please, wait. You can't leave. You didn't believe me, and now I'm going to die, and it's on you. And he heads home. And when he gets home, he looks like a completely different person. The makeup effects, I thought, were very good. I thought he did a fantastic job of playing an old man. Yeah, he does a really good job. And he's starving, and he's walking around, and he keeps almost killing people, but he keeps not doing it. Yeah. And I I think that's because he knows what's like the feudal. point. Yeah. He attacks one guy and then just stumbles away. Yeah, there's this weird scene of a dude, like, roller skating for a yeah. little bit. Yeah. There's a lot of scenes that are too long. Yeah, it's pretty bad. (laughs) But anyway, he gets home, and then Alice shows up, the young girl, and does not recognize him. But she does say, you sound like him, and you have the same eyes. Yeah. She's like, are you his father? And he's like, no, not at all. I'm just an old friend. Yes. He insists that she plays for him. This is not a day she was scheduled to come by. She just wanted to leave a note for Miriam. Because she was going somewhere or something like that? I can't remember what. Well, my name is Alice Cavender. I live across the street. I Jimmy's with the Blaylocks every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. It's Tuesday. Oh, I know. I just wanted to tell Miriam I can't come tomorrow. This is Blaylock. I kind of some some lecture I got suckered into at school. He insists that she plays for him. And while she does, they have a conversation and everything, and, and it's an interesting, intriguing scene. While she's playing for him, he just, the hunger comes over him, and it's like a last-ditch effort. You know, maybe this young... But it's also that he doesn't want Miriam to I have her. I think there's probably a combination of those things. But he, I don't think he feels good about this. No, I don't he think loves this is like this a revenge. Girl. Yeah, no, he loves and they, her. They even have a conversation about their relationship. Yeah, he asks her about John and And she know. says, Well, Miriam's my best friend. I can tell her anything, but John, I really like him, but there's just something different yeah, about he's him. He's weird. And she's like, Oh, you you don't like him? She's like, No, I love John. <laughs> he's just a little odd. You know, John speaks before he thinks. Is that what he does? I can't figure him out. I've been coming here for a year, practically. Miriam's fantastic. She's my best friend. But John... You don't like John? Oh, I didn't say that. I love him. I love them both. He's just hard to figure out, that's all. He says, I'm sorry, comes up from behind her, and kills her. And then we see him throw her body into the incinerator that they have. Which on old buildings is where you would dispose of your trash. When 
Miriam comes home, she finds him just completely, just so old, and he begs her to kiss him as and th- to think of him as he was. Yeah. And she tries, and she's just like, I can't. And she's crying, and he begs her, okay, then kill me. Release me. And this and she is keeps where, saying, I can't. Yeah, th- this is where we find out the, the ultimate twist, that as long as she's been saying forever and ever, and you will live forever, she was not lying. She was telling the truth. He will live forever. Until he completely falls apart. Yes, he will decompose. And, and he will have to deal and with all of it. he'll have to live through all of it. And he'll feel all of it. And she's like, that's the curse of our people. There is no release, my darling. Humankind are one way. We another. The rain is final. Ours is not. In the earth. In the rotting wood. In the eternal darkness. We will see. And hear and feel. That's just the curse of the people she changes, because she is not experiencing that curse. So what I assume here is that she is a real vampire. She was born this way. Yeah. And she can turn people, but not... Into what she is. Right. They're more like thralls than they are actual vampires. Yes. But they don't really, they don't say that. But like, I assume that's what it is. Which which then begs the question of how often are real vampires born? If a real vampire and a real vampire had babies, would those be real vampires? Yeah. It's very confusing. And it's not like she's trying to find other real vampires. She just keeps making new ones. So she brings him upstairs to the attic where she drops him in a box closes the box and puts it next to another box of her previous lover. And then we see that there are several boxes that she's just been storing her lovers as they decompose alive upstairs. She asks them to comfort him and to be kind to him. Lolia, this is John. Comfort him. All of you, all my loves. Be kind to him tonight. And so I was just thinking about this, like, as the rest of the movie goes, every single scene beyond this, I'm like, yeah, and David Bowie's just up there, sitting there, awake. He has Spanish flea stuck in his head. (laughs) She has sex scene with Susan Sarandon. (laughs) Just like every time I just cut back to the coffin with David Bowie in it. Anyway, the thing about Alice dying, she leaves a note and puts it in one of the statues. You think that that's going to come back. When Dan Hedaya shows up (laughs) as a detective and is like, I'm looking for Alice, we think that's going to go somewhere. And it goes literally nowhere. The note is never found that we know of. Dan Hedaya doesn't come to any conclusions or anything. He comes back at the very end, but to have no impact on the story whatsoever. So I feel like they put a lot of items in here to make it like feature length because the story they have is not feature length. We're already halfway through the story. And you notice I said love triangle earlier. And yet the relationship with Susan Sarandon hasn't even started yet. And (laughs) Bowie's already up in a box. It is a very loose love triangle, although I have heard it described as a love triangle. And as I was watching, I was like, 
really? <laughs> so Susan Sarandon shows up looking for John and then Miriam answers and she's like, oh, it's you. And then their relationship sort of starts. She explains, I had a terrible misunderstanding with your husband. And she says, well, you're too late. He's in Switzerland. When they walk in, she says, would you like a sherry? And she says, no, I don't actually like sherry very much. And she goes, I think you'll like this one. Sherry is very famously a red drink. Uh huh. So it's probably going to be blood. Uh huh. So Susan Sarandon is walking around her house and she sees a bust. And she says, this is beautiful. And it looks just like you. Yeah, it really doesn't. It didn't at all. No. She had a nose job since then, I guess. <laughs> but the implication is that, you know, she's that old. It was made of her many years ago. Yeah. She does, ex- like, say, like, wow, you have so many beautiful things. And it's like, yes, well, she's accumulated them over the hundreds of years, that she's, yeah. thousands of years that she's been alive. And then they are sitting there in this room, and they are very obviously flirting with each other. And they do the scene, they they do the the lines from The Graduate. Are you making a pass at me, Mrs. Bullock? Miriam. Miriam? Not that I'm aware of, Sarah. Mrs. Robinson, you're trying to seduce me. (laughs) Aren't you? They end up having sex. And swapping blood. Yes. And this is told through kind of a montage type thing. Yeah. A lot of this movie is told through montages. Yeah. And that's not to say that it isn't good, but it's maybe overdone a little bit. I know it's done to create that aesthetic. Yeah. And it is beautiful and it is interesting. But like Chris has said, there's not a lot of substance to this movie. No. If you break down what actually happens in this movie, there's not a lot. It's more like a music video. We get to see that she drank Susan Sarandon's blood. And then she gave Yes, and then she gave her her blood. Kind of overlapping a little bit with the scene, we see Susan Sarandon going out to dinner with her boyfriend. And at dinner, he's very irritated because she's not eating any of her food. She ordered a steak, but she ordered it rare. Uh-huh. Uh, she sent back the clams that they ordered. And she goes, I don't know. I thought I was hungry, but this just isn't doing it for me. And he's like kind of over the top upset. <laughs> it's like he knows that she cheated on right. him. Right. Uh-huh. But he has no reason to think. Well, oh, no, that's not she true. She keeps staring at the naked ladies outside. She did go and see her, and he did know that she went to see her. And it was like a three hour. Three hours. hours. And he's, but it's strange to me that he like yeah. automatically thinks they had sex, especially in the 80s. Right. I mean, he's right, but he's out of hand. Yes. And he's way over the top about yeah, it. Uh-huh. He is very angry when she says, I don't know, she's European. We sat down and had a glass of sherry. And he's just like, you hate sherry. It always gives you a headache. Like, he's so mad (laughs) about this. Like, if I came and told you I met this girl and we had sherry and we ended up hanging out for three hours, you might think it would be weird. Would you assume I had sex with her? No. No. Yeah, not at all. It's a weird thing to jump to. Not at all, yeah. 
but she is very distracted throughout this entire conversation because all she can think about is beautiful, naked, sexy Miriam swimming in her pool. Yeah, well, because there's a pool outside this restaurant. <laughs> and it's just weird. It's full of that kind of stuff. I feel like it's like Manhunter, but instead of a serial killer, it's vampires. You know, it's got that slightly noir 80s aesthetic. She explains, you know what? Her husband is rotting away in some clinic in Switzerland. She's lonely. Yeah. I wanted to sit down with her. And he goes, you want me to tell you what I think? And she goes, I'm sure you're going to tell me anyway. You know what I think? I mean, if, uh, I mean, do you want to know what I think? I'm sure you're going to tell me anyway. I love that response. Just like, well, you're going to say it anyway. So what does it matter what I think? Ultimately, they end up taking some of her blood because she says she feels sick. Yeah. Because she, like, ends up, like, being stuck in bed and she's got the shakes and everything. So they take a sample of her blood and they find out that she now has two strains of blood and they are fighting for dominance and one is winning. Yeah. So upset Sarah, Susan Sarandon's character, goes back to Miriam and is like, what the fuck? And Miriam's explaining to her everything that's going on. But she's starting to, like, pass out and get weak because she hasn't eaten. Yes, yeah, so much so that at one point, Willem Dafoe calls her a fucking junkie. Yeah, this is Willem Dafoe's <laughs> uh, debut on film. He plays a guy at a phone booth. Yes. <laughs> Miriam puts her down in a, in a bed upstairs and is like, you know, she told her this. She was like, you'll be back. When the hunger is too much, you'll need me to show you how to feed. You'll be back. You'll be back. When the hunger hurts so much, you've lost all reason, then you have to feed. And then you need me to show you how. You're crazy. So sure enough, she came back. Clifty Young, Tom, ends up following her to Miriam's place and is like, what the fuck? Where is she? Where is Sarah? And she's like, yeah, she's upstairs. And he just hoping, lets her go upstairs. Hoping that she will, that feed the hunger will Tom. take over and yep. she will feed on Tom and then she will submit. Yes. She tries to stop him. He kisses her. She wants him. But then she pushes him off of her because she's trying to save his life. Yes. He does not understand this. He becomes angered. And then she goes totally feral on his ass. She was given, by the way, I don't think we said, John's onk. And so she's wearing it at this point, saying it was a gift for Miriam. And while she goes feral on him downstairs, we see another flashback of Miriam's about a Nubian queen. <laughs> yes. Who did the same thing. And that's where the onk came from. Yeah. We can assume. Miriam will come upstairs and say, you know what? We're damned to live forever. We're damned to live forever. There's no release, no end. And that's for fucking truth. Yeah, but it's very conspicuous. Miriam does not say what will happen. You will sleep six hours in every 24. You will fit one day in seven. And from this moment, you will never grow old. Not a minute. You'll be young forever. Exactly. But she does say, you will begin to love me as I do you. And she begs her to stay with her. But that's when Susan Sarandon says, I can't. Yeah. Which is funny because earlier in the movie, Miriam told Bowie, I can't take yeah. care of you. And so then, uh, while Miriam is feeding on her, she cuts 
her own throat. Yes. And basically, she's trying to give her, like, dying blood. Yes. Which is a lot of vampire lore. You know, you don't eat dying blood. You don't eat infected blood. You don't eat sick blood. You know, whatever. It doesn't do anything really to her. But it's basically taken Sarah right out of commission. She's like, fuck, 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 fuck. Okay, we're putting you away, too. And she takes her upstairs. This is when, apparently, John was not upstairs just singing Spanish Flea this whole time. He's been inciting rebellion. Yes! And awesome! The whole house is like, there's an earthquake or something, and it's like falling apart. And There's a lot of doves for some reason. Yes. And it feels very when the doves cry. It, I mean, or a John Woo movie. With all the doves everywhere. But then also, like I said, this is very, like, the way there's lighting and God rays and the dust being lit up. And it feels like a Ridley Scott movie from around the same era. And then you have the doves, which were featured in Blade Runner just one year prior, which is a Ridley Scott movie. This is Tony Scott totally ripping off his brother uh, for his first movie, which I think is pretty interesting. But then... Miriam is confronted by the decomposed bodies of her former lovers, and they all attack her, feeding off of her. Meanwhile, she's shouting, I love you all. No! She falls down this enormous staircase. Yeah, the one that she How was tall trying to is carry this house? up. It's very tall. When she hits the ground, I guess that shock to the senses caused her to suddenly age rapidly, just like the others did. Yeah, it's it's not very clear exactly, literally, what's happening here. I, I wrote down here, this is so reminiscent of Death Becomes Her, but Death Becomes Her came later, too. Yeah. You know, just this, you can get hurt, and then you're ugly, but you still live. Yeah. You know, a lot of that same feeling is going on here. And yeah, and she survives, even though she's become like this mummy. Right, but then the rest, so... This is where the movie gets really weird. Apparently, this was studio interference. They wanted to set it up to where there could be sequels. There never were. There was a TV show, which in the second season was hosted by David Bowie. It's, it's, <laughs> it's an anthology TV show about similar sort of like sexy horror stories. All living creatures are inherently fascinated by death. After all, it's how we define life, isn't it? There's no logical need to explore death. No need to look for it. Be sure it'll find you. But some of us pursue death not out of curiosity, but because we're compelled. Facing death is easy. Facing life is hard. But they wanted to make it like where we can make sequels with these characters. So the next thing we see is Dan Hedaya showing up back at the house to talk to Miriam again. And it's a realtor being like, oh, I'm dealing with the estate. People are trying to buy the house. It's for sale. She's dead. Don't know what's happened. Again, the whole thing with Dan Hedaya goes nowhere. 
Cut to Sarah still alive and Miriam in a box. And they've moved. And it's like, oh, they're going to do something else. And then she shouts out, Sarah! Sarah! And that's the end of the movie. So basically, imagine the whole thing stops at the attack of the ex-lovers. That's really where the movie stops. Where presumably freed from their spell because she is dying. They die. They are finally released too. This is all presumption. I've never read the book, so maybe that's what happens. And that is The Hunger. Kelsey, lightning round. I liked when when Bowie confronts Danuv and is saying, what am I going to do? She says, I prayed I'd never lose you, which implicates the fact that this has happened in the past. And he starts shouting, what am I going to do? Miriam, Miriam. And then she has all these memories of all of her past loves doing the yep. same thing. That's really interesting. I kind of like the fact that they make her seem like I couldn't imagine going through life alone. So it's like, of course she wants a familiar, but it's not yeah. her fault that they only last 300 years. And it, and it tears her apart, but she she's not honest with any of them. Right. Like with Let the Right One In, for instance, right? Like that one is very honest with its thralls. Yes. You know, the idea of a vampire having thralls is not, you know, new for the hunger. But it's like in Let the Right One In, it's like, no, you're going to be my servant. You know, in this, it's, oh, we'll, lo- we'll love and live forever and nothing can ever kill us. And then it's eventually hundreds of years later, they're going to die and you're going to be like, sorry, I didn't tell you that. I'm here. Get in the box. Uh, and it's very fucked up. It's like really fucked up. And it's interesting that we get kind of this movie is the first half is the end of one relationship and the second half is the beginning of another. So we get to see how she does kind of both. And we get to see the beginning of the relationship with the context of what we know will eventually happen to Susan Sarandon's character. So, I don't know, I think that's pretty interesting. Susan Sarandon had this to say of the ending. The thing that made the film interesting to me was this question of, would you want to live forever if you were an addict? But as the film progressed, the powers that be rewrote the ending and decided that I wouldn't die. So what was the point? All the rules that we'd spent the entire film delineating, that Miriam lived forever and was indestructible, and all the people that she transformed eventually all died, and that I killed myself rather than be an addict, were ignored. Suddenly I was kind of living, she was kind of half dying. Nobody knew what was going on, and I thought that that was a shame. According to Susan Sarandon, her and David Bowie had an affair during the making of this movie. Lucky her. Also, by the reports of others, is David Bowie and Catherine Deneuve didn't really get along. It's not that they didn't like each other, but Bowie was intimidated by her. But he got along really well with Susan Sarandon. And then, of course, they ended up having a relationship. The film is dedicated to Frank Scott, who are Tony and Ridley's brothers. Uh, Ridley dedicated Blade Runner to Frank. If you ask me, I would have preferred Blade Runner. Ouch. I fucking love Blade Runner. Apparently, originally, the sex scene with Sarah and Miriam, Susan Sarandon's character was supposed to be drunk, and Susan Sarandon fought against that. She didn't want her character to be drunk. She wanted her to make this decision of her own free will. She also said, 
quote, you wouldn't have to get drunk to bed Catherine Deneuve. I don't care what your sexual history to that point had been. <laughs> David Bowie, in order to get his old man voice, would apparently stand on the edges of bridges and scream out punk songs. Uh, I had no idea which punk songs those were. <laughs> Uh, but speaking of those, when he attacks the guy in roller skates, there's an Iggy Pop song playing called Fun Time, which was written by Iggy Pop and David Bowie. About 10 years ago, Warner Brothers announced that they would be making a remake of this movie. And they would get Whitley Stryber, who was the author of the original novel, to write the screenplay. But to date, no such remake has been made. Kelsey, what do you think this movie got on Rotten Tomatoes? 63? 52. Same thing on Metacritic. Stylish yet hollow. The Hunger is a well-cast vampire thriller that mistakes erotic moments for a satisfying story. I see what they're saying. I see what they're saying. Yeah, definitely. But I think that's underrated. Do you agree? I agree. What would you give it? Well, now I feel I feel like shit for giving The Witch 74. I feel like I went way too low for that because The Witch is so well made. And I don't think this movie is as well made. I think it's interestingly made, though. It's very interesting. I think you could make up for the skill with intrigue. I'm going to give it a 75. I thought it was very good. Is it a little... I mean, like, not a lot happens. It's a small movie. But what it does, I appreciate it. Yeah. I'll give it a 73. Okay. I'd say mid to low 70s is where I'd put this one. It did something that you don't see in a lot of movies. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The the I style, that. The style and the subject matter fascinate me. But one of the problems with the movie is that the only thing I can actually relate to is, yeah, it would suck to age that fast and be stuck awake forever in a box. It's not that I need like an audience stand in. You know what I mean? Because there kind of is no audience stand in in this. Susan Sarandon's kind of the closest you get to that. Interview with a Vampire didn't have anyone that you could like directly relate to beyond maybe Christian Slater, but you couldn't really relate to anybody in Interview with a Vampire, but that's not the point. It had many relatable moments. The individuals themselves weren't people you can go, oh, that's me. That's what I would do in this situation or anything like that. And I don't need that, but I need relatable moments. And there were not a lot of those in this movie. So ultimately it came down to style and intrigue. And I think this has a lot of that. I think there was some there were some relatable moments when it comes to relationships. I think that they they touched on some ideas that you know, when you're ready to move on and but you still love the person you're with and sure. it's it's difficult and like I thought that that was there. Right, but it wasn't really exploring those. Like it touched on them, like it skipped off the surface of the water, you know what I mean? I thought Deneuve did a lot with very little dialogue. Yeah. I thought she expressed I got a lot out of that character, even though I would argue that that character has the least to say in right. the movie. I think she had so much going on inside of her, and I thought she did a very good job of showing that. Yeah. I think it's when she puts him up there, when she's obviously stressed out about wanting to help her husband, John. 
It's pretty impressive that they can make you feel bad for a character that you should hate. Yeah, I agree. Ultimately good. I liked the movie. But yeah, low to mid-70s, I think, is where this one sits for me. That is 1983's The Hunger. Before we move on to our next movie, Kelsey, Trivial Pursuit Horror Edition. In 1999's The Sixth Sense, what actor uttered the famous line, I see dead people? We just saw him. Yeah, we did. You can't think Extremely of Extremely wicked, incredibly evil, and vile. Is that what it's called? Yes. We watched that last night, and he is in it. And his name is... You can't think of his name. Shut, shut up. <laughs> I keep thinking... Oh, I got it. I was going down the wrong path because I kept thinking D, like David or something like that. And I realized why I was thinking D. It's because his last name sounds like it should end with a D, but it doesn't. No. Nope. It's Haley Joel Osment. Very good. Bam. Pulled it out of my ass. Well done. Okay. Kelsey, mm-hmm. who directed The Village? Shyamalan. <laughs> that is correct. All right, moving on to our next movie, Kelsey, 2009's Jennifer's Body, written by Diablo Cody, directed by Karen Kusama, starring Megan Fox, Amanda Seyfried, Adam Brody, Johnny Simmons, J.K. Simmons, and Kyle Gallner. What is Jennifer's Body about? A teenage girl is victimized by a emo band. She is being used as a sacrifice to make them popular. But what they don't know is that she's not a virgin, and so it goes terribly wrong. (laughs) Yes, that is true. It is available for $4 to rent, $15 to buy. We own a copy of it. Uh, Heads up, we did watch the unrated version for the first time. And according to Kelsey, not worth it? No. It gave us the option to watch... The original or the unrated, and we watched the unrated, and that was probably a bad decision. There's just a lot of extra shit in it that you're like, why is this here? uh Like, I don't know why they call it the unrated. It's just unedited is what it is. Basically, should people watch the movie? Yes. (laughs) Yes, I love Jennifer's body. Uh Uh-huh. And it pisses me off to no end that it was written by the same person who wrote Juno. Yes, Diablo Cody, who wrote Juno and Young Adult. She has a cameo as one of the bartenders in the bar that burns down. I never saw Young Adult, but I heard that you hate the main character, like, immensely. I heard it's good. But you just love Patton Oswalt. Sure, yeah. You can take our advice or leave it, which is, again, you should watch it if you haven't yet. Uh, and when we get back, we will talk about 2009's Jennifer's Body. You and me are going out tonight. Wear something cute, okay? You always do what Jennifer tells you to do. It's just that I like the same things that she likes. This isn't really your house, is it? We can play mommy and daddy. No way. <sighs> Jennifer's evil. I know. No, I mean, she's actually evil. Not high school evil. Chip is looking really cute to me lately. How is he tasting these days? You are never a good friend. You could have anybody that you want. Why Chip? You're killing people. No, I'm killing boys. Are you scared? Thought you only murdered boys. I go both ways. 
I will finish you if I have to, okay? You can barely finish gym class. Kelsey, how does Jennifer's body begin? We open on our main character, played by Amanda Seyfried. Her character is called Needy, that's short for Anita, and she is in an asylum for criminals, for insane criminals, and she describes how she gets all these letters from all over the world. She's, like, famous now. Yes. I'm kind of the shit. Uh Uh-huh. Some people talk about how they pray for her, and some people talk about, you know, how she's the demon of the world and whatnot. Uh Uh-huh. She uh, explains that she is what's known as a kicker, K-I-C-K-E-R. Yeah. She has a lot of strength. When a woman approaches her and says, you shouldn't just be eating toastums, she kicks her all the way across the room. Yeah. She says, I used to be normal, but I'm not anymore. And she then hears, so because she kicks that lady, they put her in solitary. Mm Mm-hmm. And they start to play an instrumental song, and she says, fuck, I hate this song. God, I hate this fucking song. It's a song we'll be talking about later. It is a song that will be played throughout the film. She explains that she is from a place called Devil's Kettle because there is a waterfall that goes down and they don't know. They think it, they don't know where it goes. Do you want to talk about this? Okay. So Devil's Kettle is a real thing. Oh, it's a real place? Yes. Oh. It's specifically the waterfall and that hole. Uh, It is a real thing at Judge Magney State Park in Minnesota. For the longest time, they literally had no idea where it went. Uh, They would actually throw stuff down there and then not get anything back. (laughs) Recently, just as recent as uh, 2016, the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources did some tests above the falls and then below it where, where the river continues on. And the results of the test are practically identical, implying that the water just almost immediately meets right back up with the river again. And one of the reasons why when you throw stuff in there, you don't see it come out is either A, it goes really fast and you don't get there in time, or B, there's enough power in there to destroy whatever you throw down there. Wow. Yeah, they they proposed dropping some dye in the water and then see where it come, meets back up with the river, but the park management discouraged them from doing that. And so they just didn't. I mean, they're they're fully confident that that's exactly what happens. <laughs> it's just they can't test it that way because, you know, they don't want to risk messing with the natural resource. So it is actually a real thing, and it is really called the Devil's Kettle. Interesting. Yeah. We get to see Jennifer. So this isn't a flashback. So pretty much all of this movie is a flashback. Yeah. We get a shot of Jennifer sitting on her bed looking like shit. And we see Amanda Seyfried standing outside her window. And she says, Jennifer didn't always look this bad. Yeah. uh (laughs) She explains that everything happened two months ago. So two months ago, we open on a beautiful version of Jennifer, played by Megan Fox, as a 
flag girl. Yeah, color guard. Color guard is what we called it. Yeah. At my high school. But later she does say I missed flags. Yeah. So they might just call it flags. Anyway, she's doing her whole flag routine and they both wave to each other. And uh, one of the other girls says, you guys are like in love with each other. You're totally lesbian is what she says. Yes. And she explains, hey, sandbox love never dies. Yeah. You know, and it's true. If you meet somebody very young and you stay together all that time, it's pretty hard to put a wedge between those two. Yeah. After the show... They meet up, and Jennifer tells Amanda Seyfried, we're going to go to a show tonight. This band called Low Shoulder is going to be there. I checked out their MySpace. Yeah. Uh, the lead singer is Extra Salty, which is her way of saying that he's very hot. Yeah, he's tasty. Yes. And he is. It's Adam Brody, the guy from The O.C., who we also saw for about a second in The Ring. Yeah. He is a very attractive man. Sure. So she tells her this, but Needy says, I'm supposed to hang out with my boyfriend tonight, who is played by... The character's name is Chip Dove, played by Johnny Simmons, who was young Neil in Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. Yeah, he's the one who she asks, what do you play? And then he lists off a bunch of video games, Uh (laughs) when in fact she meant an instrument. Uh Knives, that's young Neil. What do you play? Wow, um... Zelda, Tetris, that's kind of a big question. To which she says, cross out needy. And that will be a thing that they say several times throughout the the movie. Uh, It's her way of just saying, like, I'm not happy with you. She eventually convinces her to go. So essentially, Jennifer is certainly the leader. She's the dominant one in this relationship. Absolutely. Yeah. Needy will basically do whatever it takes to make Jennifer happy. Yeah. And we do learn that because she says, wear something cute, okay? And Amanda Seyfried explains, something cute means that I can't wear my normal clothes, but it also means that I can't show off my cleavage because Amanda Seyfried has an abundancy of (laughs) cleavage, whereas Jennifer really doesn't. I mean, Megan Fox is hot, but she doesn't have big boobs, so it makes sense that she would want her to wear something That doesn't show it off because that would make Amanda Seyfried hotter than her. Her boyfriend is over and she puts on her clothes Uh and he's like, I forget what he says. He says, I can practically see your front butt. Yes. Those jeans are hella low. I can almost see your front butt. It's a rock show. This is my rock look. Well, I can see like your womb, so. This is my rock look. Yeah. (laughs) It's really cute. It is really cute. And then... He says something about Phil Collins, and she's like, who's Phil Collins? And he's like, he's seminal, but whatever. (laughs) She is a very typical high school girl. Mm -hmm. He is obsessed with music. He plays the drums in his school band. Specifically, he plays the quints. The what? The quints. It's the the set of five drums that you have in front of you. Ah, Jennifer is the typical hot chick who is an idiot Yeah, sleeps with everybody. She explains that Jennifer says that the lead singer is extra salty, to which he says, well, then you're soy sauce, baby. (laughs) So cute. Yeah, no, they are awesome. Ironically, he's a little bit needy, but she's also a little bit dismissive when it comes to Jennifer. She absolutely prioritizes Jennifer over 
him, which does kind of suck. Uh, but like, other than that kind of broken element, like they're adorable together. She quickly says, okay, I better hurry before Jennifer gets annoyed with me. And he's just like, why are you even friends with her? And yeah. she's like, well, we have lots in common. He's like, you have nothing in common. Uh-huh. <laughs> when she gets there, she she says, it smells like Thai food. Have you guys been having sex? Have you guys been fucking? I think is what she actually says. It smells like Thai food in here. Have you guys been fucking? And when they leave, he doesn't want her to go, to which she says, you're jello. Uh-huh. Which now kids say jelly. Yes. I never once heard a kid say jello, but it's almost like she came up with jello and then kids were like, no, it's jelly. Uh-huh. Like, ugh. Anyway, yes, I am going to talk a lot about the funny lines because this movie is so greatly written. Yes. So let's talk a little bit about Diablo Cody, okay? So... Kelsey hates Juno. I do. And I do not. I like Juno, but I understand why people dislike it. Juno was the the first thing that Diablo Cody got made, followed by Jennifer's Body, but she wrote them both around the same time. She also created and wrote several episodes of the United States of Terra. Young Adult, we mentioned, and she has right now a contract with HBO. She's working on some TV series for HBO right now. And what she is very, very good at is making dialogue that sounds slightly elevated, like aspirational for young kids to like, no real people don't actually talk like this, but they kind of do. This is like the most interesting of the way that kids talk. And that's what she's really good at capturing. She's also a former stripper. But let's talk about the difference here, because I feel like there's a pretty big one. Is it that this movie isn't twee like Juno is? Juno. It's all hipstery. Juno felt to me like a movie that the masses could like and the masses could feel like they enjoyed indie films when in fact that's not what indie films are actually like. Do you know what I mean? Anyway, you don't have to agree with me. I get it. I totally get it. But it's just fun. Like, I don't watch a movie like Juno because I think it reflects reality. I think it's an interesting movie to watch. People are put in interesting situations and they respond in interesting ways. That's what I'm here for. I don't need it to be like, oh, that's just how my friends talk. But this is a little bit closer to how people actually talk. And you as a teacher know... Sometimes slang sounds unnatural to the people who are hearing it for the first time, but not to the people who use that slang every single day. Mm-hmm. Anyway, yes, Diablo Cody did strip for a very long time. She was a phone sex operator, and then she started writing and became prolific in writing. So good for her, I say. She ended up naming this movie Jennifer's Body, by the way, after the whole song of the same name. I didn't know there was a song called Jennifer's Body. Yeah, whole Courtney Love's band. No. The song is interpreted as being about a woman being objectified and potentially murdered. And she thought that it was a creepy song. And it was like, okay, what if a song was a 
was a horror movie, you know? And so she thought she kind of co-opted that name uh, for this film. Interesting. It had sort of that same thing. It, 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 it has a very heavy feminist interpretation in it. And, you know, it's about objectification and all of that. So Exactly. Because all of the people who are interested in Jennifer are only interested in her because of her looks. Yes. Or because they think that she is a virgin. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, either way, it's all about sex. Interestingly, this is this movie is... It kind of had underground success after its release. It didn't do crazy well when it first came out. Well, that's because the marketing was later. awful. Yes. So, apparently... According to the director, Karen Kasama, the marketing department did not understand the movie, and it was comprised of all men. And one of their ideas for marketing the movie was to have Megan Fox do uh, live chat sessions on porn sites. And the director, Karen Kusama, said, no, we are not doing that, and do not even mention this. To Megan. Mm-hmm. Like, absolutely not. Her her concern was that it would be, in her words, dispiriting and crushing. Well, yeah. Yeah. When I saw the marketing for this movie, I immediately thought, oh, I'm fucking not seeing that shit. Right. Because it looked god-awful. Because, I mean, the fact that it was all men makes perfect sense. Yeah. The fact that they saw the film and didn't understand it makes perfect sense. Yep. Megan Fox, too, is also really cool. She can be erratic or whatever in her personal life sometimes, but I think she's fantastic in this movie, and I I think she deserves more than to be objectified. Mm -hmm. Uh, She actually lost 30 pounds in the middle of making this movie, specifically so when she needs to reflect her hunger and when she's all disheveled and hasn't eaten in a long time, she could look like that. Like, she was committed. Mm -hmm. Megan Fox is well-known for being in the Transformers franchise, mm-hmm. which she hated eventually, <sighs> and obviously very much objectified in that movie. Yes. Uh, there are some really great interpretations. Lindsay Ellis on YouTube does a really good breakdown a lot of, she has several videos all about interpreting Transformers in different ways. And one of them suggests that if you were to come into this movie blind and look at the plot and not what the camera is telling you to focus on, that Megan Fox's character is the main character of that story. And it's <laughs> not Witwicky. And it's really, really interesting. And yes, of course, going through the experience with Transformers, she was extremely objectified, especially so by Michael Bay. And so she fucking hates that guy. <laughs> So I'm not surprised when reports come out that, oh, she's mean to Michael Bay. But then people get all up on her case about it. No, Michael Bay's a little sleazy. Like, he knew what he was doing. Yeah, no, totally. And it's, I could go on a very long tirade, so I won't do it. And it just, I'm just going to say, I'm not surprised. Yeah. Nothing about that story surprises me. Right, and you already knew. Like, you thought completely independently that the marketing was fucking garbage for this movie. Yes. Then to find out that there was all a bunch of men who who did not understand the movie just isn't surprising, you know? Look, I only have so many girl crushes. Two of them are in this movie, 
and they make out. I'm not going to say that's not super fucking hot. It is. <laughs> yes, absolutely. But that's not but in an the empowering, point. Well, it's also an empowering way. It's not yes. like a, hey, look at these girls make out. Ooh. Exactly. That's not what it's about. Is it hot to see? Yes. Yeah. But you need to understand the relationship between these characters and all the things that are going on behind this yeah. kiss. I mean, the movie is, it's it's written by a woman. It's directed by a woman. It's starring two fantastic women. They're not going to make a movie for the male gaze. Yeah. And yeah. so that's not what this is for. Does that mean that it's not a sexy movie that guys like me can enjoy for that reason? Like, no, absolutely not. But that's not what it's here for. And if you think it is, you are completely misunderstanding the point of the movie. Yes. Jesus. Anyway, so they go to the bar and they get X's on their hands because they're Cause not they're 21. they're underage, yeah. And they get in there and they see Chris Pratt. Yes. <laughs> That threw me off. I didn't remember he was in it. Yeah, well, he's in, like, one scene. This scene. Just want me to arrest you for possession. Are you gonna arrest me? You're not even out of the academy yet, Roman. Two more months. Then I'm on the force for reals. And he is trying to hit on Jennifer. Well, he's kind of her boyfriend. No, they've just had sex. Right, I know, but, like... She says later that she's seeing him. Oh. Yeah, he's a he's a police deputy. When she says she has the cops in her pocket, I'm seeing a, a deputy or whatever it is that she says. Mm-hmm. So they go right up to the band and immediately Jennifer starts flirting and she goes to get them drinks. It's a 9-11 memorial drink. <laughs> Jesus Christ. You have to drink it real fast or it'll turn brown. <laughs> yeah. Can I um, can I buy you a drink? Sure, what are we having? They have this really awesome 9-11 trivia shooter. It's red, white, and blue, but you have to drink it really fast or it turns brownish. All right, well, we'll drink it fast. Okay. Like, and when she's bringing it over later, she's talking about how Tower 2, like, it's literally two tall shots. Like, that's why it's a memorial for 9-11, and it's red, white, and blue, and yeah, anyway... While she's going and getting that, Needy goes and plays a pinball game. And while she's playing that pinball game, she can hear them talking. And they're talking about how, oh, she's definitely a virgin and she's perfect and and all of that. And Needy, she's not wrong to be alarmed, but she has no idea what they're talking about. She thinks she does, but she doesn't. Right. And she goes immediately to Jennifer and is like, uh... Well, no, She first she goes to him and she, oh, yeah. she tries uh-huh. to be all tough and is like, don't don't mess with my friend. And you know what? She is a virgin. Like, yeah, it's because she doesn't fuck guys like you, you know, like yada yada. <laughs> so she goes and tells Jennifer this and Jennifer's like, get out. I am not even a backdoor uh, virgin anymore, thanks to Chris Pratt. <laughs> and by the way, that hurts. I couldn't even go to Flags the next day. <laughs> I had to sit on a pack of frozen peas. (laughs) (laughs) But then they start singing, and almost immediately, Jennifer is under their spell. Yeah, like she is literally hypnotized by them. Yes. So they've already made a pact with the devil. They specifically came here to find a girl to sacrifice to the devil. Yes. And their song is actually legitimately okay. So, okay, there's a reason for that. (laughs) The songs are all written by... A group called Wildling, like a real 
rock group headed by uh, this guy named Ryan Levine. He gets writing credit for the songs. Adam um, Levine? No, Ryan Levine. Oh. <laughs> I was like, I know that name. And so when you hear them playing music, it's an actual indie band called now called Wildling. At the time, they were called No Country. So that's an actual song? Well, they wrote it for the movie. Did... Adam Brody actually sing it? No, no, it's, oh. it's done by this band. Okay. Yeah. And it's actually a pretty good <laughs> song, but you'll hate it by the end of the movie because you have to hear it so many times and it comes to represent their evil. Yes. But. Like you get the song stuck in your head, yes. and it's that obnoxious sort of extra emo. Like, how <laughs> dare you? You know where they're just like, oh, they have their hand on the back of the microphone, which and, Chris says would ruin the song. Well, it wouldn't ruin the song, but it it negates the purpose of having <laughs> the back of the microphone open. <laughs> it's capturing in all the sound that's not your voice and it's trying to offset that so when you cover that what you're doing is you're having the microphone pick up a bunch of sounds you don't want it to pick up <laughs> it's better for how your voice is captured if you leave the back of the mic uncovered anyway while they're singing their song amanda notices that like a fire is starting no one else does and the way she watches it did that remind you of anything the way she follows it slowly going around the whole building. Oh, it totally made me think of Carrie. Yes. Oh, absolutely. I was like, wait, wait what are you getting at? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> it's it's It was like Carrie and the when auditorium Sue going When Sue Snell out. sees the, the string and yeah. is trying to figure out where it's where it's leading to, yeah. it was almost exactly the same. With you can't, the, uh, you can't convince me that they didn't do that on purpose. With the bucket of blood, yeah. So she watches this fire get started. No one else is seeing it. And then it explodes. And Amanda is also a little bit hypnotized. That's why she doesn't say anything. Right, That's yeah. why she's just watching the carnage all around her and she feels like she can't do anything. But then suddenly she snaps out of it, realizes that Jennifer's not moving either, and yeah. then she goes into survival mode. I know where to go. And she grabs Jennifer and they run to the bathroom and get out that way. Yeah. Through the, through the, the window, window in the bathroom. Yeah. And there's a great scene where they're sitting on the lawn outside the venue and everyone's freaking out and it's still on fire. And Adam Brody comes up and he's like, oh, you guys are safe. I've been looking for you everywhere. <laughs> it's like obviously totally not true. Yes. But uh, this is when he starts to try to get here. Let's go somewhere safe. You know where's, where's really safe is my van. And Amanda Seyfried is like, uh, needy, is like, no, what? And he's like, listen, I'm going into survival mode. I'm trying to get someplace that's familiar. And that place is my van. Yes. And he doesn't give a shit if Amanda comes. He just wants Jennifer. So... Needy, Amanda Seyfried's character, is try is still kind of like in shock, and Jennifer is is under his spell, so she's just like, leave, Needy, just leave. I want to go with them. I want to go to their yeah. van. And this is Needy's moment where she fucks up. She tries barely, but she doesn't know what's going to happen if she does anything more. Right. 
But she also was worried about upsetting Jennifer. Yes. And I understand all that, but I my response would just be I would never let my friend get into a van sure with some random person they just met. My point is that it reflects a reality and whether it's the right thing to do or not, it's a real thing. And you know, it reflects that she's worried about oh, is my, is my best friend going to be mad at me or whatever, when really the, the the feminist thing for any woman to do is to get her friend, regardless of how much she kicks and screams, and get her out of there. And that's part of, like, the whole point of this movie is about, like, women being there for other women. Yes. You know, and what it's like to be a good friend to another woman. And Jennifer is not that. And in this moment, needy, good intentions or otherwise, is also not that. Mm -hmm. So when she gets home, she calls her boyfriend and says, you know, there was this fire. I could hear their bones breaking and I could smell the people burning. And, you know, I feel like I'm going crazy. But then also Jennifer went with these guys. Yeah. And then, all of a sudden, Jennifer shows up. Yep. She is... Covered in blood. Yes, covered in blood and downstairs and looking in her refrigerator. And Amanda Seyfried watches her, like, eat chicken and, like, just, you know, yeah. stuff straight out of the fridge. And she's like, I'm really not supposed to eat that. I'm supposed it's to save it for, for my mom. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then Jennifer turns to her and just roars at her. And then vomits up this black shit that yes. later Needy will describe as evil. Yes. <laughs> and I love- It's like moving and, and it gets spines and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah just like in uh, John Dies at the End. It reminds sure. me a lot of that shit. And then Jennifer laughs and comes up close to Amanda Seyfried and almost bites her. Yeah. And then leaves. Mm-hmm. So that's the first indication that Jennifer has a very small amount of control right now. Right. And the only reason why she doesn't attack her, attack Needy, is because she loves her. Yes. So there is that bond. Yeah. It's mm -hmm. not a fake bond. No. Jennifer really does care about Needy enough to the point that she was willing to stop her hunger. Yeah. And go after somebody else. Uh-huh. We find out who that someone else is later. Yeah. It's the foreign exchange student that they thought died in the fire. Yes. So the next day at school, Jennifer shows up looking amazing. Yes. And everyone else is, like, crying and confused. But Jennifer just acts as if it's any other day. She feels great. And Needy is like, aren't you upset? People died. And Jennifer's just like, sucks to be them. Yeah. J.K. Simmons is their teacher. Is like, all broken up about it. <laughs> and he has claw. a claw prosthetic for his hand for some reason. <laughs> and he's fun in this. <laughs> says it's the time it's the time for uh like n talking to people or whatever so it's you know we're not we're not trying to figure out who's the most righteous dude or who's a hoe <laughs> now more than ever put aside your teenage concerns about who's a cool dude or who's a hoe we can't let that damn fire win it already won god bless you kids 
They really think he's a righteous dude. <laughs> he's very popular, Ed. The sportos, the motorheads, geeks, sluts, bloods, wasteoids, dweebies, dickheads. They all adore him. They think he's a righteous dude. But we get this incredible zoom in the middle of this open field where their defensive lineman is standing. Like the, the school's football team's lineman, linebacker, sorry, is standing and just zooms in on him. And it's incredible, right? And then he turns and he sees Jennifer walking towards him. And then it turns back to him, and she pops into frame from the other side. He's like, whoa, ah, it's kind of fun. It is. It's <laughs> very fun. And he's like, I lost my best friend. And she says, I'm, I'm crazy sorry about what happened. I think we should be together. I think it's what Craig would have wanted. So uh-huh. they go out into the woods where she will eat him. Yeah, all these, like, forest critters come up in pairs, which we assume are male-female, but who knows? <laughs> like, it's going to be this love fest or whatever. And while he's screaming, the teacher hears it. He goes, let it all out, kids. <laughs> let it all out. So then they hear on the radio that the band is talking about the fire. Yeah. That happened at Devil's Lake because yes. he can't he can't be bothered to get it right as Devil's Kettle. And he's talking about how he saved people from the fire, even though he totally didn't. Yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, and the band is dedicating through the trees to the victims of the fire. But then after that happens, things calm down. And Amanda Seafried explains we thought that things were gonna get better, but we were just all being idiots. There's now going to be a festival that they're going to put on, and 3% of the proceeds are going to go towards their town. Yes, which pisses Needy off. 3%? Yes. <laughs> what about the other 97%? Meanwhile, it, some time has passed, and now Jennifer looks like shit again. She's like, it's like I'm one of the normal girls. Uh-huh. So this is when, and we've already met him, but we forgot to mention it, but... This is when Kyle Gallner will ask Jennifer out, yes. right at the point where she's feeling the worst. Like Kyle Gallner, so for this for this show, we know Kyle Gallner from the Nightmare on Elm Street remake. Uh, but Kelsey has a huge crush and has had for many years on Kyle oh yeah. Gallner. Huge crush. So Kyle Gallner is like hot topic personified. Yes, and Needy and him have a creative writing class together. So they're friends. Yeah, and, and she's like, I think he's he's really cool. I like him, which causes a little bit of consternation on the part of her boyfriend. He thinks that they're they're hooking up. Well, he doesn't think that. He's just, it makes him uncomfortable. And when Colin is his name, asks Jennifer out, he gets up the courage to ask her out. And she's like, no. Needy's like, you know, you should treat him nicer. He's actually really cool. I think he's kind of cute even. And Jennifer's like, Oh, you do? Colin! And she calls him back and agrees to go out on a date with him. Yes, which is showing us a number of things about their relationship. Yeah. Because again, what it all what this movie boils down to is how girls treat girls. Yeah. It really, really is. And it's about feminism and it's about realizing that when you're friends with somebody, it should be a real friendship. Right. But here we see wait a minute, you think he's attractive? Well, then I need to get in on that. Yeah. Because 
The only person Amanda Seyfried has that Jennifer can't get is her boyfriend. Yeah. So Jennifer probably would have gone after him at some point, even if this hadn't happened to her. Would you guess that? Yes. Yes. But right now, Colin would be much easier to get. You see what I'm saying? No. Colin would is an easier target than Amanda Seyfried's boyfriend. Oh, yeah. So it's like, oh... You would take him if you were single? Well, then I'll fucking have him. Yeah, there's a lot of complicated interpersonal relationship stuff going on here. Is it that Jennifer values Needy's opinion on who is an acceptable mate? Maybe like 2%. (laughs) You know, is it that she wants to hurt Needy? No. But if Needy, and we see this back when when they're kids, Jennifer loves Needy. But only insofar as Needy stays in her place. Yes. And Jennifer always needs the better thing. So if there's a thing that Needy wants, Jennifer's personal validation is to take that thing for herself. Exactly. And that's what, that's why she goes after Colin. Colin asked her originally if she wanted to see the Rocky Horror Picture Show, to which she says, I don't like boxing movies. Yeah. And he's like, it's not a boxing movie you know whatever (laughs) well we've been having a lot of fun in class you and i and i thought that maybe you'd like to go see a movie or something there's a uh, midnight showing of rocky horror at the bijou next weekend i don't like boxing movies yeah but it's not it's not a fucking boxing movie um fuck it okay forget it and that's before she runs after him and gets him again. Yes. And she's like, I'll text you my address. Mm-hmm. So that night, Needy and Chip have sex at the same time that Kyle Gallner, Colin, goes to Jennifer's house, in quotes. It's really an incomplete construction of a house. And he goes in and he goes upstairs and there are all these candles and she, you know, starts seducing him. Well, there's a couple things I want to say. When she originally asks him to come over, she says, let's watch Aquamarine. It's about a girl who's half sushi and has sex through her blowhole. Yeah. <laughs> she assumes that that's Which what it is. Which it's not it's at not. all. It's a kid's movie about a mermaid. Well, she's half sushi. That's it, right? And then she she's like, I guess she has sex through her blowhole. Like, she's... Fig- she, Her obsession is, okay, well, how does she fuck? (laughs) Even though the movie's not about that at all. On the way there, he is singing a punk song, but it's like of a pop song. Sunshiny Day? Yes. I can see clearly now the rain is gone. I love him singing it. Yeah, uh uh-huh. I love him so much. Uh Uh-huh. And then when he walks in, well, okay, first of all, I assume that he is willing to go through this because she's so gorgeous. Yes. Because when he cuts out of the car, he automatically knows this isn't your house. And the only way he can find a way in is through a window. Yeah. 
So it's like, he must be fucking dedicated to having sex with this girl. Yeah. And when he walks through the house, you can hear Akon playing in the background. Uh Uh-huh. Because he's dying right now. (laughs) It's so funny because it's so not what he would be into. Uh Uh-huh. They're so not suited for each other in any way. Other than the fact that she's a demon and he's goth. (laughs) She is, by all accounts, a succubus. Yes. Which gets its life force from draining it from others through sex or seduction. But so when she takes off his pants, she Ah. says... Nice hardware, Ace. We literally just drove by an Ace Hardware this morning. Which both of us laughed at that line. (laughs) But on top of that, earlier in the film, when he asked Jennifer out and he walked away, she said, did you see the eyeliner he's wearing? My dick is bigger than his. Yes. (laughs) Oh, it's funny that she's like, oh, nice hardware, Ace. Uh He's into maggot rock. He wears nail polish. My dick is bigger than this. Well, I think he's really cool. Nice hardware ace. But he's just like, do you even know my last name? Yeah. Because I don't think he was expecting it to go this fast. Right. No, I I, I think, and part of this is probably down to the way that Kyle Gallner plays it, that he's not just trying to fuck her. He wants to. <laughs> But he's like, he wants to go on a date with her. Yeah. You know? And so when she's immediately down to, like, take off your pants, he's like, no, something's off about this. But then she says, so they start making out, and she says, I need you frightened. I need you hopeless. Yeah. And then she starts, like, thrashing him around. And while Needy and Chip are having sex, she's responding emotionally to this because she has an emotional connection to to Jennifer. Yeah, that's p- a part that I didn't quite understand. Why is she already connected this way? Well, she doesn't have any powers or anything like that yet, but she does have like a bond. And that's what it's about. It's about having this bond. And it happens throughout the movie. It's more than just this one time. This is just where it's introduced. There are moments of heightened emotion that Needy can sense in her best friend whom she loves. And there's just, this is just a literal interpretation of that. And so she starts freaking out and panicking and being terrified. Meanwhile, Chip thinks that she's just responding positively to his sexual moves. And that he's too big for her. Yeah. And she ends up saying hopeless over and over again, just like Jennifer had mentioned. And he's not catching any of this because she's kind of saying it under her breath. And he thinks he's rocking her world. Yes. It's after this, I think, that Jennifer shows up again to tell her the story. So on the way home from Chip's house, Needy sees Jennifer walking along the street, and Jennifer ends up jumping on her car. And then when she gets home, Jennifer is asleep in her bed. Yeah. And every time... Needy is like, what the fuck is going on? Jennifer always treats her as if she's just way overreacting. Right. Like, it's not that big of a deal that uh-huh. I jumped on your car. I also love that when she sees her, she's like, is that my Evil Dead t-shirt? It, yeah. <laughs> Which doesn't really make cute. any sense. I can't imagine that Needy, who doesn't know who Phil Collins is, would be into Evil, Evil Dead. Dead. Totally, yeah. That's more maybe something that Chip got her. Maybe, I don't know. And so Jennifer 
decides now is the time to tell her what happened. Well, first they start making out a little bit. Oh. Which wasn't in the original script. But Needy's kind of like they're kind of Needy's a little hesitant about it at first, but then she's kind of into it. I mean, she she loves her. They love each other. So it is understandable that especially when Needy's kind of confused and Jennifer is hypersexualized, that there would be some sort of physical connection between these two. But immediately, almost Needy pushes her away and is like, what the fuck is going on? Yeah. And asks Jennifer to tell the story. And Jennifer, knowing she's talking to her best friend, who she tells everything, Mm -hmm. it just kind of -of matter-of-factly tells the story of what happened that night when the bar burned down. So, Jennifer got into the van, and pretty quickly the spell started to wear off. And she starts to ask questions about where are we going, what's going on, and Adam Brody is a total asshole, and he's like, you don't have to talk if you don't want to. And then he's like, God, I hate girls. And he ends up, like, telling her, shut the fuck up. Yeah. And at one point, she's like, you know, they're arguing about, oh, there's no way she's actually a virgin. And she's like, yes, 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 I am a virgin. So you're going to want to get one of these other girls who actually know what they're doing, you know, but not understanding that they're, no, they're specifically looking for a virgin. Yes. Which is half a reference to the satanic ritual they're about to perform and half a reference to the cliche obsession with bedding virgins yes when they get to the place they take her out and one of the guys is kind of nervous about it and he's like i don't know if i can actually do this and he says look do you want to live the life we're living now or do you want to be rich and awesome like that guy from maroon five (laughs) and he goes maroon five So he starts reading off the incantation, and they're like, where'd you get that? And he's like, from the internet. Yeah. It's really funny. They believe that Satan is their only hope of becoming famous. Right, because they'll never get famous just through their own skill. So he does his little thing. They sing a song. Because she starts to scream and everything. So his way of confusing her and getting her to calm down is by singing Jenny's number. Yeah. Is that what it's called? Or is it 8675309? It's 8675309 Jenny, I think is what it's called. Okay. All right, here we go. It's going to be gnarly. No, please, please. No, please. Wait a second. I just thought of something. (laughs) Jenny. Jenny, you're the girl for me. You you don't know me, but you make me so happy. I tried to call you before, but I lost my nerve. I used my imagination, but I was disturbed. Jenny, I've got your number. I need to make you mine. Jenny, don't change your number. And while they're singing that, and she's totally confused that he stabs her. Yes. They stab her several times. She also then tells the story about how she has this hunger that- I'm a really good friend, and I didn't eat you. Yeah, exactly. But she did eat the foreign exchange student after she left that night, and Needy's like, I'm going to call the police. Jennifer says, no, I have the police force in my pocket. Don't you know I'm dating a deputy trainee or whatever it is that she says? And she's like, watch, and she hurts herself. She cuts herself and it, like, cleans up, and she's Uh like, it's like some X-Men shit. Yes. And she says, when I'm full, it's like I'm unkillable. Yeah. And she goes, what do you mean when you're full? 
Because that would mean that she just ate somebody. Yes. She's looking great right now. Yes. And then she ends up basically threatening Chip. She's like, maybe I'll go after Chip next. And Amanda throws her out after that. And Jennifer jumps out the second story window and runs away. Totally fine. When she goes to school, she's surprised because it seems like nobody gives a shit about all these things that are happening. And in the background, you can see that they're putting on the spring musical, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. Yes, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, the musical. (laughs) Jesus. So anyway, Needy does some research. Yes. Uh, In their library's occult section, and Chip later on, Chip later on is like, our library has an occult section? She's like, it's like one one shelf or whatever. (laughs) And she finds out what fucked everything up. The band were supposed to get a virgin. Well, like, what's supposed to happen is it's supposed to be a sacrifice for this demon. But if it, they're not a virgin, the demon will merge with the soul of the sacrifice and survive and then be this, like, human-monster hybrid. The guys in the band tried to sacrifice her in the woods, but what they didn't know is that she hasn't been a virgin since junior high. It all makes sense now. Read this. If the human sacrifice is impure, the result may still be attained, but the demon will forever reside in the soul of the victim. She must forever feed on flesh to sustain the demon. The sacrifice did work for the band, but they're kind of both in this kind of halfway point. Now Needy is really concerned because there is this spring formal coming up that it's going to be a buffet. To which Chip is like, I already made reservations at the Cheesecake Factory. I got you your your corsage. It was an orchid. It was like 12 bucks. <laughs> and she's like, we're not going. Yes. And she's like, I'll be there. But you're not. But you're not going to be there. And he gets dressed anyway, and he goes to the spring formal. Needy is already there. Oh, my God, her dress. It's like this big, poofy, pink dress with big shoulders and... She's got this weird curl in her hair, and yeah, it's fantastic. It's hilarious. But she goes just to watch and to see if Jennifer shows up. And while she's there, J.K. Simmons introduces the fact that Soft Shoulder is there, or Low Shoulder, fuck, it was Soft Shoulder originally. Low Shoulder is there, and they're going to play for free. Everyone's all excited, and she's kind of pissed off about it. But while that's happening... Chip is walking to the dance on his own through the park and runs into Jennifer. Who's looking pretty bad. Yes. She lies and says, just so you know, the reason that Needy's been so weird lately is because Colin died and her and Colin were having an affair. Yeah. And he's like, no, that doesn't make any sense. And she says, and I've always been in love with you. I've just never had the guts to admit it. Yeah. She convinces him to go off with her. To the old pool. Yes, this old, decrepit, run-down, ill-kept pool that I guess the school used to use. They're sitting on the edge, and she's trying to make out with him, and he's like, no, like, uh, at first he kind of is, and you think it has something to do with him starting to be under her spell. Well, what she says is, tell me I'm better than needy. Yeah. And he goes, what? Why? Yeah. Because men just don't understand women. <laughs> yeah. And why women behave the way that they do. And why she would want to hear that she's better than needy. Very obviously, because she's extremely insecure. Yes. And that's true. Yeah. The hotter you are, usually the le- the more insecure you are. 
because well, because yeah, because your, your entire life up in your has look. been ba- yeah. based uh-huh. on all these compliments. So when you don't get that compliment, it's scary. Yeah, if there's somebody that is looking at you and needy and wants to be with needy, you start to wonder: is that because you're not as good? Mm-hmm. You know. So, in any case, he's not responding as well as she thought she would. So there's this awesome shot of her. She just grabs him by his collars and throws him into the pool. But she just follows him down into the pool. And it's a really cool shot. Meanwhile, Amanda's starting to be like... She has that connection. Yeah. And so she knows what's happening. So she leaves the the dance to go and find them. She climbs in through one of the windows on the vines that are all gr- overgrowing this pool and sees what looks like her making out with Chip. But when Jennifer turns around, you can see, no, she's been chewing into his neck. Yes. I do love, before she pulled him down into the water, she said, I feel so empty. Uh Uh-huh. To which Chip was like, yeah, me too. It's like- Yeah, totally different things. I liked Chip's face. Yeah. Because for a moment, he's like, oh my God, it's like, we feel the same way. She is actually deep. She does feel- No, she means literally- I'm starving. I'm starving, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) When- Amanda shows up. They begin to have this fight, and it's an epic fight. Jennifer is flying around. <laughs> Chips is like, she can fly? And then he <laughs> says, she's just hovering. It's not that impressive. To which she says, do you have to undermine everything I do? You're such a player hater. She can fly. She's just hovering. It's not that impressive. But do you have to undermine everything that I do? You are such a player hater. You're a jerk. Wow, nice insult, Hannah Montana. You got any more harsh digs? She's just like, I was the queen snowflake. And she goes, two years ago when you didn't have to take X-lax to stay skinny anymore. (laughs) It's just, it's so brilliant. I I, I love that they took a regular best friend situation in high Uh school between two girls, gave them all of the same problems that teenage girls do, and just added the succubus element. Yes. That's what I think I love about it so much is that there's so much that's real yes. about this movie. It is so good and it's so funny. Yes. That's why it just doesn't surprise me that men just did not get it when they saw it. No, yeah, cuz to them it's oh a, a hot chick and she's a murderer. Exactly. Like that's what it's about. And it's that's not what it's about at all. Not even a little bit. Uh-huh. <laughs> Her eating these guys isn't even really supposed to be taken literally. Yeah. Uh anyway, <laughs> when they're fighting, she almost kills Amanda Seafried. She already thinks that she's successfully killed Chip. She hasn't. And so Chip ends up stabbing her. With, like, a pole. Yeah, it's a broken pool net. To which I think it's Jennifer angrily is just like, God, it seems like you're plugging right now. Like, you're on your period, and Uh, that's why you're being such a bitch to me. Yeah. Chip dies after he stabs her. He says something that's really, really sweet. Basically, to to relieve her of her, her worry about keeping him alive, he says, I think I already died before you got here. But I woke up when I heard your voice. So they're separated now, Jennifer and Needy. Needy goes back home and she gets ready. And she puts on her hoodie. She gets her uh, her dad's box cutter out of his toolbox. And this is that shot we see from the beginning of the movie 
when Needy is in the institution and she talks about how Jennifer didn't always look this bad. Jennifer's totally fucked up on her bed watching an infomercial and Needy's looking in the window from outside at her. Needy ends up coming in. They continue to fight. Jennifer ends up saying, cross out Needy and puts the X on her stomach, which I think pushes Amanda to finally kill Jennifer. Yeah, they do this cool, like, Needy's on top of Jennifer, and then Jennifer floats up and then spins around. Uh, So then Jennifer's on top of her, and it's this really cool fight. Yeah, and then ultimately, she stabs her. Jennifer's like, ow, my tit. And Needy says, no, your heart. Mm -hmm. Because specifically, she needs to be stabbed in the heart. That's one of the things that Needy discovered in her research. But it's at this moment that Jennifer's Jennifer's mom mom walks in. in. Jennifer, what is it, baby? Oh, my God! Yeah. So this explains why Needy is in the mental hospital. It doesn't explain why Amanda's been there as long as she's been. Right, because she gets out when she just feels like it. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, what we end up seeing is that Amanda Seafried now has some of the abilities because she was bitten by the succubus but did not die. So she has all this strength, which is why she was able to kick that woman across the the room in the beginning of the film. We also find out that she's been floating the whole time we've seen her in solitary confinement. We've only seen her from, like, the knees up. While she's sitting there, like, Mm -hmm. cross-legged. And we see that she's actually been floating up there the whole time. She's able to get the window broken and gets out. She then hitchhikes to a band that she wants to see their last show of. Yeah, she gets picked up by Lance Henriksen, who is asking her about it. And he's like, oh, they must be really great for you to follow them or whatever. And she's like, yeah, it's their last show. And then we get credits. And during the credits... We see like video and video footage of them in their hotel room partying. And we see security footage of Needy walking through the hotel up to their room. And then like police photographs of the crime scene of them completely fucked up and dead. Which is a great way to end. It's great. The movie. Yeah, it's, it's a fantastic. great ending. Yeah. <laughs> I could go through, but there's there's going to be so many. I'm just not going to. It's This movie is hysterical. Yeah. There are tons and tons of one-liners that I could go through. Did you listen to the soundtrack from the musical that came out last year? There's a musical version? Uh, unofficial. Somebody turned it into a musical. Oh, Jesus Christ. No. Probably garbage. <laughs> Probably. The, the trend that's been happening over the past 10 years. Let's just make everything into a musical. Let's make everything into a musical. Because isn't that silly and fun? Teen <sighs> girls, man, they fucking love it. Do you want to talk about Ginger Snaps? Oh, sure. I think that Chickapedia would be upset if we didn't. This would have been a perfect. Ginger Snaps. Oh, yeah. Absolutely perfect. Uh, Ginger Snaps came out in like 2000, I think it was. This Mm -hmm. was 2009. But plot wise, content, not so much, but like plot beat wise, it follows a very similar plot. So I'm going to break this down for you. Of course, the movie stars two main characters that are sisters or are like sisters known each other their their whole lives. Eventually, through the course of events of the movie, they will be pitted against each other. One of the characters gets attacked in the woods, survives, and changes into some sort of monster, which drives their personality when they're interacting with 
their sister friend and end, uh, end up becoming mean to them. The monster of the two of them kills boys from their school and eats them. The good one looks in the school library for a way to solve this problem and ends up discovering it there. The good one's boyfriend or love interest, I guess you could say, is killed by the evil one. There's a big party going on during the climax at the school. The good character stabs the bad character to death in their home, but the good character has been bitten by the bad character and ends up changing themselves. All of those things happen in both movies. So they are very similar, very similar in that way. I like Jennifer's body better. I do too. Jennifer's body is funnier. Yes. More entertaining. Not to say that I didn't love Ginger Snaps. I did. But I think that Jennifer's body is just a little bit more clever. Yeah. And, and it has the benefit of coming out second. And it has the better effects. Yeah. And uh-huh. yeah. So. It's, which isn't to say that we didn't like Ginger Snaps. We did. But I think this one's better. So, Kelsey, what do you think this got on Rotten Tomatoes? 64? Try 44. Oh, God. Metacritic of 47, cinema score of C-. But, I mean, like we said, when it came out, it people didn't like it. Jennifer's body features occasionally clever dialogue, but its horror comedy premise ultimately fails to be consistently funny or scary enough to satisfy. Like, I was never scared. A horror comedy doesn't need to be scary. Right. And also... This has so much more going on that the horror element is almost more of an excuse for some cool effects. Well, yeah. And And that's fine. And the setting to dramatize what would otherwise be kind of mundane. Mm -hmm. I mean, think about Evil Dead. I love Evil Dead. It's mentioned in this movie. Evil Dead's not scary. Sorry. She's creepy. No, I'm never scared. I think she's creepy. Which she are you talking about in Evil Dead? His girlfriend. When she's when she turns into the doll. Yeah. I, no. I think she's creepy. No, I wouldn't no, want to stare at that face. Not at all. Because that's kind of not the point. It's it it is a it's a setting, it's a context. Yes. And it, it's it's the driving force of the story. And I think that it's interesting, and that's all it needs to be. I'll be honest, maybe five percent of the movies we watch ever scare me. Oh, yeah. We watch too many for them to be scary anymore. (laughs) But I enjoy being creeped out. I enjoy uh jumping and screaming sometimes. But anyways, totally underrated, right? Oh, very. What would you give it? I'm going to give it an 82. Just above Ginger Snaps. Okay, what did I give Ginger Snaps? 80. Okay. And I think 82 is perfect. That's, That's exactly what I would give it. Again, Ginger Snaps is great. Love it. We gave it an 80, which is pretty dang high. This is just that much better. Yeah. It's so funny. It's got two of the hottest chicks ever in it. Yeah. And they're great. I thought... And look, I'm not going to say that they, this these were hard roles to play, but I thought they did an excellent job with They really them. did. Yeah. I thought Megan Fox did way better than you would have guessed she would have. Oh, yeah. She's pretty dang talented. Yeah. Like, she's not just 
a body to put on the screen in Ogalat, which is the way that Michael Bay treats her. Mm-hmm. Like she's she can act. Mm-hmm. She's not like an Academy Award winning actress, like you say, but like she has talent. Yes. In any case, that's 2009's Jennifer's Body, ending our week of semi-vampiric sexy time. <laughs> I forget what I actually called it at the beginning of this episode. With 1983's The Hunger and 2009's Jennifer's Body. Kelsey, next week is our 100th episode. Can you fucking believe it? 100 We've weeks? almost done this for two years now. Mm-hmm. What are we watching to celebrate our 100th episode? It's also my birthday week, mm-hmm. by the way. But then Kelsey's birthday week is immediately after that. So we're going to push our birthday stuff to our 101st episode. And instead, for our 100th episode, we're going to do a big one. What is it, Kelsey? We're doing a double feature? Yes. The Shining. Yes. Can't believe it's been 100 episodes and we haven't done The Shining. But that includes the 97 television miniseries that Stephen King insisted on being made because he disliked all the deviations in (laughs) Kubrick's version. So that's like five hours worth of show right there. Yeah. Plus the over two hours of the original from, from 80. So very, very excited about this one. So, so jazzed. Really excited to celebrate our 100th with such a big double feature. Until then, you can always reach us at podcemetery.com, our email, podcemetery at gmail.com, and our Twitter, at podcemetery. Please follow us on Twitter. We post a lot of extra stuff about the episode, a lot of supplemental materials, things that don't go well in audio format or that we think of after the fact while we're editing. So make sure you follow us there. Don't forget to rate and review in your podcatcher of choice. Five-star written reviews are the best help you can be. We've gotten several really fantastic reviews in the past couple weeks, so thank you very much for that. That helps us offset the one-star reviews we're getting for not liking Return of the Living Dead enough, which apparently is the worst sin you can ever commit if you're a horror movie podcast. (laughs) Um... Even better than leaving a review is sharing us with your friends. And even better than sharing us with your friends is listening in the GD first place. Thank you all very, very much. We love each and every one of you. Until next week, I've been Chris. I've been Kelsey. And this has been Pod Cemetery. Before we go, Kelsey, any last words? Satan is our only hope. We're working with the beast now, and we've got to make a really big impression on him. And to do that, we're going to have to butcher you and bleed you. And then Dirk is going to have to wear your face. (laughs) Relax, I'm kidding about the face thing. But the rest is going to happen. In Fright Night, 1985, which character is turned into a vampire? Can you just tell me? Evil Ed, but I think you've already asked me that question. Well, okay. I guess I'll ask a different question then. (laughs) 
in the Hellraiser series. Now, we didn't actually get to this, I don't think, because I don't think it's in the first Hellraiser. But I think you know the answer to this. In the Hellraiser series, 1987 to 1992, in what war was the former human self of Pinhead a British army captain? World War One. I've asked you that question. Fuck! I think it's sexy to think of teeth puncturing the neck and the blood flowing that way. Uh, that's Johnny Simmons, who was Neil... I was going to say Neil Young. <laughs> <laughs> what do you know him from? What did I first see him in? Yeah, let me see if I can find out. He was in Wet Hot American Summer. as Bobby's buddy. Finding Home, The District, Judging Amy, Red Eye, Headphone Kid's brother. He was Beaver in Veronica Mars. It might have been Jennifer's body that I saw him in first. Because I've seen a lot of the shit he's been in since then, but because I knew who he was. Big Love. I think it was Jennifer's body. Hmm. Because I've seen most of these things. It's just that I saw them after that. Yeah, that's funny. She says, we can watch, what's it called? Mermaid Tail. Oh. (laughs) Oh, um, Aquamarine. My life is stupid. 